Good morning. My name is Moises Ortiz, and I, I serve here as a pastoral intern. And I want to thank God and the Crossway family and the elders for the opportunity of bringing this morning the word. And we'll be studying a majestic passage in the Gospel of Mark. If you're visiting us this morning, welcome, and we hope you had a really good Thanksgiving with your loved ones. So in recent weeks, I've heard several ideas, positions, disagreements about when is the right time to start listening to Christmas songs <laughs> and when to start with Christmas decorations. It must be before Thanksgiving or it must be after Thanksgiving. What is the perfect time to do this? And so far, I don't know. However, the beginning of Christmas and, and this season has already begun regardless of when Christmas decorations or songs makes Earth their appearance in your homes. December starts this season of Advent and the special time to remember and meditate on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus and his coming to this world. It seems to me that many times we separate the message from the birth of Christ to the message of his death. However, those messages belong together. The cross and the manger are closely related, and we will consider today the last hours of our, of our Savior Jesus Christ in Mark 15, 33 to 41. We will meditate on six different reasons to marvel and thank for the majesty of God in Calvary. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the blessing of being together and knowing the message of the cross. Thank you because we can remember this morning that our Savior came to this earth, but we remember that he came to die in the cross for our salvation. And Father, I pray that the message of this morning will be your worth only. Father, that any mistake, Father, that any distraction will not take place this morning, but only the power of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in that beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So please go with me to Mark 15, verses 33 to 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud voice and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. There was also women looking from the distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. 
when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. As we follow this, the narrative of the Gospels, we can see that the Lord Jesus suffered an irregular and unjust trial. And he received an overwhelming amount of hate and violence and cruelty against him. But not only from the priests or from, or from the Roman soldiers, but also from the people in general. The Lord was scorched, spaten, beaten, with no mercy, and finally condemned to die in the cross. Even though the governor who tried him reiterated that he had no found any crime in Jesus, nevertheless, the capital conviction was carried out. As readers of this narrative, it is fair to ask, where was God when all these happened? Why didn't God destroy all who were mistreating Jesus? This is a reasonable question. And the answer is that all the time God was there. In the sufferings in the cross, we not only see God the Son, but also God the Father on Calvary. God was there at all time, but not to defend his son, not to destroy the enemies of Jesus, no. But the Lord was there to judge on that cross in Jesus every of our sins. We must contemplate the scene of the cross with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was there actively working for reconciliation through the death of his son, his only and perfect son. So in these things that we will see to marvel, we can see in verse 33 an amazing darkness. There was a darkness all over the land. And we know that according to how does the Jews counted the time, this happened between nine in the morning and noon. And it seems that this was a supernatural darkness. It was not a solar eclipse, but a supernatural darkness. And it was not a, a solar eclipse because no solar eclipse lasts three hours. And eclipses do not happen when there's new moon. And this was a new moon because Passover was happening. Mark makes it clear in his account when he writes about the darkness to tell us in which time it starts, the geographical extension, but also when it was over. We see the darkness that God caused to show on a physical way what was happening on a spiritual level. At the time when the Lord was giving his life in the cross. Douglas Webster says, in the birth of the Son of God, there was great clarity at midnight. In the death of the Son of God, there was great darkness at noon. In the scriptures, darkness is also and often associated with the day of the Lord or the Lord's judgment. Several passages help us to see the relationship between the passage of darkness and the times 
of judgment. Amos 5.18, for what purpose the day of the Lord will be to you? It will be darkness and no light. Zephaniah 1.14-15, the great day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. But the most significant connection we can find with the different scriptures in the Old Testament is what we found in Exodus 10. When the Lord was judging the land of Egypt and Pharaoh with the death of the firstborn. God at that time sent a dense darkness. There is a revelant, a revelant importance of the time that Mark is mentioning in his account. Because in Exodus 12, it says that the lamb must be slaughtered between the two afternoons, around three in the afternoon. The Passover lamb was a substitute through which the life of the firstborn who was condemned to die, will be preserved by the covenant in the blood of those who have faith in the covenant with God in the, in the blood of the Lamb. Those will not die. Those who had the trust and faith on that. And that is why the angel would pass by. And this is why we have the expression in English, pass over. Because the angel was going to pass by the families that in faith sacrificed the lamb as a substitute. Mark Moss tells us that the Lord expired at the ninth hour. Which is the same time that the atonement lamb was to be sacrificed according to Exodus. The Lord Jesus received in that place the full severity of God's wrath as our substitute, so that we could be acquainted in God's court. There is no coincidence here. Every single detail was perfect in God's plan. John the Baptist presents the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin from the world. Christ is our Passover Lamb that was sacrificed for us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. And 2 Corinthians 521, he says, For our sake he made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. And Peter tells us in his first letter that he bore our sins on his own body on that tree. That is the essence of the gospel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:3, Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Every single piece finding its place in the perfect plan of God. Our faith has been, in the last times and almost every single time, under attack. There will be many scientific debates. There will be a lot of philosophical debates about our faith. But the truth is that the only way that someone could be saved is through the preaching of the gospel. 
without doubt developing meaningful relationships, showing love to others, compassion, caring to others, demonstrating a real interest for those that we interact with. It's relevant for our work of reach out for the lost. But we cannot deny that the Lord decided that it was through the words in the gospel, of the gospel, that people will be saved. So that's why is that these words have to be communicated because the gospel is the only thing on planet earth that has the power to save. The gospel is the announcement of what God did in history throughout the death of his son so that he could be found innocent, so that we can be found innocent in the day of judgment. The gospels and the epistles says that Christ died and suffered these things according to the scriptures. That is to say that it was announced long before so that we will have no doubt of the messianic identity of Jesus. Isaiah 53 is what some people will call the gospel of Isaiah. We can read that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We went to the cross. And we find there the innocent one. Dying for those who are guilt. The Lord want to crush him because of his justice, because of his holiness. This was required. In order to justify us, he had to carry the punishment. The execution of the punishment when the earth was covered with this darkness, the lamp of God was being sacrificed on the altar of the cross. The Lamb of God was suffering the eternal hell for those who he would save deserved. The anguish were to suffer. All the eternity of our sufferings was placed upon him. Christ gave his life for his church. As John Stott says, divine love Triumph over divine wrath through divine sacrifice. And it is something that we cannot understand. But in the cross, we both find punishment and amnesty, severity and goodness, justice and grace. He had to suffer his father's helplessness. So that we can be accepted today. And that brings us to our second point. The terrible abandonment. Verses 34 to 36. It is the ninth hour and Jesus is crying. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus has Experiencing on the cross the full severity of God's wrath and all his fury and power. 
And it is there where the Lord Jesus quotes the words of the Psalm 22. The Lord expressed in a loud voice, in a magnified voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was there, but not comforting his own, instead punishing him with all the fury of his wrath for all these sins that we deserve to pay for. In his human nature, the Lord had been delivered in total helplessness. God the Father could have no fellowship with the Son while he was being made sin. I quote again, Stott. It was about God in our nature, abandoned by God. That is the truth that it's happening in the cross. The holiness of God does not, does not allow him to have fellowship with his perfect son because in that moment he was being made sin. And making him to be sin shows, shows us the, the huge price that was needed to, to be paid for our salvation. Only God could absorb the power of his wrath. Only God could do that. He was willing to pay this price on the person of, who, of his beloved son. And the son was willing to pay the price on himself. He who laid down his life to take it up again. In studying for this sermon and in the desire to preach on the cross, not just as a, as a theological element, but as the event itself, I have come to the conclusion that there is no preacher that can, nor has been, able to teach this passage completely, fully, in absolute understanding, due to the immensity of its content. The abandonment that Jesus had to suffer in the cross exceeds in any way our capacity of understanding. Several commentators present the reality, God abandoned by God on the cross. Who can understand this? This is the only time where we will see Jesus saying, my God, instead of Father. How can we understand this completely? How can we understand this fully? And I, I just think of the glorious moment the glorious day when everything will be revealed on eternity. And for the first time, we will be able to approach a full understanding of what was the meaning of the abandonment of the cross and the cost for our redemption. It will be until that moment that we will understand the cost. The cry of anguish of Jesus is a direct quote from Psalm 22. The Lord does not quote this psalm by accident. It's not because that was the psalm that Jesus remembered at that point, but because in this psalm, after describing all the punishment and the horrors of the cross, of the punishment that God was requiring for his wrath, this psalm concludes with a song of victory. The end of this psalm is a victorious song. 
is such a paradoxical moment because this is a moment of absolute victory and also of terrible pain and torment. Later, as the narrative goes on, we see that some of the people who were there at the place thought that Jesus was calling the prophet Elijah. We don't know clearly whether if it was because of confusion or because of mockery, but the people around said, look, he's calling Elijah. As we know, the prophet Elijah did not know death. So there was a tradition that said that those who were righteous before, before the Lord, he will always help them and send Elijah to help them to find a way out from punishment or torment or problems. So we don't know if in the mind of these people, he were actually hoping for Elijah to come. We know that for them, Jesus was guilty. They, they knew and they thought he was guilty. And we know this because of what Deuteronomy 21-23 says. He was in that tree. He was guilty. But it's incredible to see how this generation, how these people were waiting for a sign, to see a sign. They don't care about if Jesus is guilty or innocent. They don't care about if he was actually speaking blasphemies. They want their sign. They want their show. They want to see. And that is a perversion of this generation. We know that these people had no idea of what was actually happening. None of them knew that the perfect offering was being presented to God in this very moment, which actually drives us to our next point, the voluntary offering. This was a voluntary offering of atonement in verse 37. He uttered a loud voice and breathed his last. Mark does not tell us what does Jesus said, but the other gospel writers tell us that he said it is finished and gave up his spirit. The punishment was over. The work has been completed. The wrath prepared for eternal punishment for the redeemed was unloaded in a few hours on our precious Savior. Father, in your hands, I entrust my spirit. The punishment was over. The Son calls God Father again. We know that the Lord offered his life because he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life. No one takes, takes it from him. He gives his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. It is interesting 
that the accounts in the Gospels record that Jesus expressed these things in the cross in a loud voice. The punishment of the crucifixion will not allow people to breathe. The injuries that were produced in so many cases will even kill the people before they made it to the cross. Those who suffer the punishment, the crucifixion, were exhausted. They barely were able to talk. But Jesus, every single time he's expressing something, he's expressing on a loud shout of voice. And this is important for us to understand because Christ did not die because he was exhausted. He did not die because his life came to an end, but because he has the power to lay down his life. He offered his life. Nobody took it from him. He didn't lose his life. He laid down his life. That is a powerful Savior we have. He decided to give this offering for the atonement. That is why the Lord is an active and living offering, a sacrifice of the atonement for those that he came to save. The work of Jesus on that cross changed the history of the world. And the work that the sin began started to be reversed by this action in the cross, giving us a new entrance to the holy God. Verses, the verse 38 talks about this new access we have to the holy God. The curtain of the temple was turned turn in two from top to bottom. And this was not a fragile curtain. It was a heavy veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was that place where God specially displayed his presence in the temple of Jerusalem. There was there the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat. And in the day of Jom Kippur, or the day of atonement, the high priest will sprinkle once a year, and only the high priest was able to do this once a year, to sprinkle the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered. Josephus, Josephus, I learned this one. <laughs> Josephus said that this was so thick that even two horses pulling on opposite sides could not, be, could not broke the veil. It was thick. But this was destroyed for us. That is the power that Jesus had, even in that cross. The veil demonstrates the separation between sinful men and a holy God. There was no access for people. And I don't know how much we understand this. There was no access for people. 
but it was in the perfect work of Jesus Christ that the veil was split in two and giving us a new access to enter and have fellowship with the Holy God. Not because through the sacrifices of the temple, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the cross. The sacrificial and priestly system came to an end with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. A single sacrifice forever, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God performed by our high priest, Jesus Christ. Today we can confidently enter into the presence of God through the reconciliation that we have in the Lord, that he made himself. Dear brothers and sisters, we should not get used to this. We must not stop marveling ourselves every minute with the display of grace and love that happened in the cross. We must not get used to this. And after this, we see the answer to what happened here. An answer as confession in verse 39. The centurion response allows us to see the only possible response to the sacrifice of Jesus. Matthew tells us that the centurion was amazed by the natural phenomena that accompanied the Lord's sacrifice. But Mark shows us a beautiful confession from an eyewitness who could see the work of mercy. While the people and the leaders thought that they would have defeated their political adversary or this Jesus guy that was talking blasphemies all the time, a Gentile, a Gentile was able to see the real nature of the Savior. Truly, this man was the Son of God. What amazed him from Jesus' death? Probably this centurion saw so many people dying. What was so special about this? It is of a fundamental importance for us to see this testimony of this eyewitness of the death of Jesus. Now the question is, what about us? How do we respond? Is a confession of who he is part of our answer? When we see, hear, talk about Jesus, do we do it lightly or we do it with the reverence and the faith of the centurion? Or we have becoming to naming this name on a lightly way. Have we forgot the importance of this name and the power that this name has? Now, please don't hear me say that we should not trust him. We should not approach 
God with confidence, that we should seek rituals to live our faith. I'm not saying that. But the truth is that as believers, we live in between two worlds at the same time, all the time. In the world we currently live, but also in the world we're expecting to come. In between our responsibilities as citizens here, but understanding that our citizenship is in heaven. Between the confidence to approach the throne of grace, but also the reverence of the fear of God. Our last point this morning, the trustees of the saving faith. Mark ends this part of the narrative with a group of women who stood firm in the dead of the Lord. To be the first eyewitnesses of his resurrection. This group of women occupy a place of honor in the gospel. For they eyewitnessed his pain on the cross. They witnessed his death. They witnessed his burial. They witnessed in the days to come his resurrection. And they become the trustees of the message that Jesus was resurrected. They were responsible of, this, of, of delivering this message to the apostles. And therefore, heralds of the Christian faith. Since day one, women had a whole place of honor among believers. Because of their faith, their love, and the service to God and to Jesus himself. And to the church of the King Jesus. These women set an example of service and devotion that we need to imitate. They serve him in different places and they follow him. They follow him and they exalted him when everybody was hating him. When the apostles ran away, these women stood steady for their Lord. That's an example we need to imitate. Dear brothers and sisters, when we see the cross, we can see that God does not take his holiness lightly. Therefore, God does not take sin lightly. Even if you and I do. And if we have questions, and if we want to know how serious is sin for God? We just need to see the cross. We just need to look upon the cross to see how serious sin is. And to see the amazing gift we receive. Our place was a condemnation. On that cross, we can see the magnitude of God's love. A love that we cannot understand. The nature of God's love is that Jesus went to the cross to die for his enemies. There is no salvation outside the Lord. 
only God could save us from God himself. No one but God was able to save us from his wrath. And outside there, there's a lot of people saying that there's many ways to God. And I think a good question for that will be, can those supposed paths, can do the atonement for my sin? Are those different ways able to satisfy God's wrath? That's the question we have to ask. That's the reason why the gospel is power to save. And in this season, as we remember the birth of the Lord, we cannot disconnect the message of Jesus coming from the purpose of why he came. We will remember the birth of Jesus in the tenderness of Christmas lights and in the joy of the Christmas songs, in the gatherings with people, in the fellowship with other believers, in how special this season is, and in the beauty of the Christmas time. And I believe it's a beautiful time because all the world, if they know or not, if they accept or not, they are remembering that Jesus came to this world. But when we see all this beauty, we cannot forget that every single thing of this is speaking about God in Calvary. The Lord suffering the punishment. The Lord being there to judge so that we can celebrate today in peace and joy. Let's remind ourselves that he drank the cup of pure wrath which he had asked in painful anguish to have taken away, but it was not so. And he took the cup so that we could drink the cup of pure grace. The Lord Jesus drank the cup of wrath without enjoying a single drop of mercy so that today we can enjoy the cup of salvation without a single drop of rage. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for the amazing message of the cross. Father, we cannot understand the beauty, the deepness of this message. We cannot understand the cross completely, but we know that it was because of Jesus' sacrifice that today we can call you Father. Thank you because we can enjoy grace and peace and salvation today. And Father, if someone this morning here does not know you, 
as father and does not know Jesus as a personal savior, Father, I pray that your spirit will work in his or her heart for repentance and salvation and eternal life. We pray these things in the name of our loved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.